How do we create more sustainable people, businesses and a more sustainable world? At EarthSelf, we believe you need to create harmony between humanity and nature. Sustainable the podcast brings you inspiring interviews with leaders who are taking action to help create harmony between humanity and nature. Join your host, Tabby Jane, founder of EarthSelf, to discover nature-connected ways of being and working and become inspired to take action. In episode 105, I spoke with Dr. Neil Lester about the key qualities of being human, how they can benefit the workplace, what Project Humanities is all about, and how acknowledging our differences can help us work together more effectively. Today, I'm speaking with Simon Hayes. Simon Hayes has worked in the energy sector for over 25 years. He was appointed Chief Executive of KPS in July 2017, and before KPS he held senior management positions at both SSE and Infinis. Simon is a chartered mechanical engineer. He has managed development and construction teams on some of the largest British onshore wind farms now in operation, including Clyde, Griffith, Gordon Bush and Gallowhistle. Welcome to Steinman. It's great to have you on Sustainable today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So where did the idea of using kites, because that's what KPS does, it uses kites to generate renewable energy. Where did that idea come from and what are the benefits of using kites? Okay, so the use of kites goes back over 2000 years. The Chinese were the first people to develop kites and uh, about 100 years ago in the UK they were used for man-carrying devices to allow people to see over the horizon. So, so large kites carrying loads have been something that's been around for a long time. In about 1980 a chap in America called Lloyd uh, conceived of the idea of, of crosswind flying kites to be able to produce uh, mechanical power which could be then converted to um, electricity and at the time it wasn't able to create the control systems needed to uh, to position the kites accurately uh, and the materials were not available either. Since then there have been a lot of advances um, so in, in terms of um, global positioning systems, avionics for aircraft, uh, a lot of advances in the systems that go into uh, drones uh, and uh, and also materials have developed significantly. Um, so for example, we're looking at materials which might be used in, uh, in racing sail yachts. So these are very specialist sales materials working at a very high loads. And all of these things combine to make the ability to, uh, to realize a, a crosswind kite electricity generating system possible. We are at the moment working through, um, we have demonstrated at small scale and at the moment we're trying to, to scale up now to, to do a prototype, uh, what we call mid-scale, which is roughly around the 500 kilowatt size, which is equivalent to, um, to a turbine, an onshore turbine of about uh, 15 years ago. Um, but we see great potential for this technology to go offshore to mm -hmm. go onto floating platforms uh, and to be able to open up areas where offshore wind turbines can't go at the moment. So offshore wind turbines are currently limited by uh, a sea depth of um, typically up to about 40 metres in extreme 60 metres. Um, but, but to do that uh, it requires an awful lot of materials. Mm -hmm. uh, a kite system could go on a floating platform uh, but do it without a great deal of cost uh, and just be anchored to the seabed. And that's where we see uh, a real possible market. Mm. I like it. So I mean, what you're, what you're saying is that even though the kites have been there for such a long time, it's only been as technology and in other industries has been developing that you've been able to almost synthesise these different technologies together. 
Correct, and we and we are doing that. So, um, so you're absolutely right. We're not. We're a team of 35 people. We're not looking to develop avionic systems ourselves. We don't have the in-house specialisations to develop the materials that that we need. Uh, but what we are doing is combining the efforts of others into an application that's novel and unique. Hmm. Awesome. And then one of the things that you have said is that kite-powered energy has a lower carbon footprint compared to wind turbine energy. So, I mean, is that part of what you were just mentioning there in saying that um, there's a greater depth that wind or kite turbines can go down to um, compared to um, needing like the concrete platform for the wind turbines? Is this part of why there's a lower carbon footprint or is it something different? Okay, so there's a couple of things. One, in terms of, of carbon footprints, and when, when people talk about carbon footprint for renewable energy schemes, what they're generally talking about is how much carbon is emitted during the construction and the deployment of it. Mm-hmm. So um, for a conventional wind turbine site, the carbon emission is, is very low indeed. And once it's installed and operating, then there is there are no carbon emissions as there are with uh, gas-fired power stations or coal-fired power stations. We have less material uh, and therefore the, the carbon emissions in terms of manufacture and, and deployment uh, will be lower. But it's a lower number of what is a low number anyway. Mm. What, what is, what is um, really uh, different about our technology is the ability to get the cost right down. Uh, uh, but, but to have a system which is entirely sustainable and has no carbon emissions with it. So because we, we use far less, we will use far less material in our commercial devices, mm-hmm. uh, the cost to manufacture will be significantly less. Uh, and also uh, when we deploy them, because they're much lighter systems, the cost to maintain them and, and potentially recover them to shore to do maintenance uh, will be much less as well. So, so Carbon uh, emissions in, in, in overall will be lower, but it's lower of a small, what is already a small number, uh, but cost is a thing that's, that's very important to, to, to the government and, and to consumers, and that's where we think we can make a main difference. Yeah, and I mean, that is something that, um, when I was having an exploration of your website, it said that you're able to keep on bringing the price point of this technology down and down. So even in what you had said, you've done small scale, you're going up to mid-scale. I mm-hmm. mean, what is the difference in the price point from then, and how how do you foresee it keeping on going? Okay, so we are we are at the moment still uh, in the prototype phase, so it's not a, a technology which is available commercially today, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore, as with all prototypes, the absolute cost of, of a one-off uh, system is is relatively high. Mm. But what we do is we work with with advisors and and uh, and people from uh, from different arms of government to talk about how, when we go into volume manufacturing, we might be able to reduce that price down. Uh, and we're very clear that we we ought to be able to get down to uh, to a price which is uh, entirely competitive and indeed one of the one of the trends with uh, with the UK government at the moment their main focus is to try to get renewables to the point where it requires no subsidy from the electricity consumer at all mm-hmm. uh, and people seem to, to, to think that's going to be around the the 35 to the 55 pounds per megawatt hour price uh, and, and our uh, predictions are we ought to be able to achieve that price and and lower going forwards okay and then is that something that just curious in terms of like comparing it to to wind turbines? I mean, are they at that price point already, or no, they're not. So, um, so onshore wind is uh, wind turbines are are the cheapest form of, of mature scale generation at the moment. But but um, within the UK, the, there was a form of subsidy which allowed people to deploy them. That subsidy was withdrawn uh, at the end of, of 2017, and since then in the UK uh, there have been almost no new deployments. Now, people are looking to get to a point where they can develop onshore without subsidy, um, 
but we're not quite yet there yet. In terms of offshore, those systems do require subsidy and the government, the UK government uses a system called uh, Contracts for Differences. Though the, and that is an, a competitive auction process and those auctions have been pushing prices down significantly and the, and, the, and the reduction in cost proposed for offshore wind has been truly remarkable and it's a great success story for the sector. Um, but but the, the last round is talking about schemes which will will uh, start to be deployed around 2022 and, and so the, the proof will be in the pudding. If they can actually do it at the price that they've bid in then, then mm -hmm. that will be um, uh, very commendable. But um, it is still a system which requires a, a, a contract and, and a form of subsidy. What we're trying to develop is a system which will not require any subsidy at all and still be competitive with, with whatever is out there in, in terms of, uh, of other forms of generation. So, and it is likely to be, um, well, for, for, for scale deployment, offshore wind, because offshore wind is now coming down to the point where it is cheaper than, uh, uh, than open cycle gas turbine generation. Um, but for onshore, it, it might be a different comparator. So it might be diesel generator sets or solar or whatever mm -hmm. is, is the market we look at. So it, it depends very much on, on the market you go to and what, what, what are the factors there. And of course, the, the, the other variable within this is the price of oil in the future. Nobody knows where that will go. It's been very low uh, for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. It's starting to rise again. And as it, as it rises, the, 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 the margin that you're looking at changes as well. So, But, but we just try to, 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 to focus on a product which will ultimately get us to a place where we can be subsidy-free. Mm. And I like that. And I mean, it's, it's even from what you're saying there with subsidy-free, it's coming back to exactly what you said about the ongoing maintenance costs. So if you can bring it down and create something that doesn't require subsidy, and then has lower main maintenance costs, that even makes it more cost effective and more attractive as a an energy source as well. So it, it is. It's lower. It's lowering costs uh, of maintenance. It's also we believe easier to, to maintain because these systems can be towed out and are relatively light. So with with offshore wind turbines, you need uh, very large specialist insulation vessels, uh, which are very expensive, and then once it's installed. To maintain it, people have to go to the device, and that brings risk with it. And the safety around maintenance in offshore is a is a vast topic in itself. And there are there are times when sea states and wind conditions are such that people can't get to it. Uh, and also the support, a lot of them are using helicopters now, which in itself is another form of carbon emission to uh, uh, to support it. Mm. We envisage a system which which has a potential to be relatively easily towed back or for components to be swapped out, which means fewer people will need to go offshore to support them. So a lot of the maintenance could be done um, in the nearest port or the nearest suitable port with those with those facilities. Uh, so it, it is it is cost, uh, but it's not just cost; it's also efficiency in terms of support and, and maintenance. Mm -hmm. So then, as you you, you said. This this is still in its conceptual idea. Correct, yeah. So then what is the process that you need to take to move an early conceptual idea in, into, in renewable energy into a sustainable commercial business? I mean, what's the what's the journey so far and where do you sure. still have to go? So, so uh, there's so many things that are required. The, the main one is cash. One, one, needs, mm -hmm. uh, one needs to get funding. And um, we've been very fortunate in that um, Shell in particular have funded us uh, since 2011 through a number of their schemes, mm -hmm. uh, a scheme called Game Changer then Pathfinder. We've also had support from both the Scottish and the UK governments, uh, UK government through uh, Innovate UK and, and Scottish government through the Scottish Investment Bank. At the end of, of 2016, the, the, the company uh, closed a £7 million investment round and, and that brought in E.ON, the German utility, and Schlumberger, who do oil field services, as well as Shell uh, and, and Scottish Enterprise there. So, so cash is, is, is always one of the main things that one needs. Um, 
Also, uh, good advice, uh, and uh, and this comes from our, our directors from from the investing organisations, but also from organisations such as Scottish Enterprise, who help us, and departments of the UK government in terms of uh, discussing how we might be able to uh, export where those export markets might be for the first commercial products, and how one goes about setting up uh, uh, an entry into into this commercial area. Um, the the, uh, the other thing we need is to be able to, uh, to to demonstrate and prove to people that we are making progress. So um, we, we work small, we start at micro scale, we then go through to small scale uh, and then we were in the process of going up to what we call mid scale at the moment. So demonstrating the proof of concept, the ability to control at smaller scales uh, and, and overall it's described as crawl, walk, run. Just do, just do tiny amounts, just, just make sure you're comfortable with what you can demonstrate. Keep the learning process going and, and, and show to investors that every time we are we're adding new knowledge into the organisation, we're creating future value um, for everyone. I think also be realistic about what can be achieved and when. Um, one of the, um, the issues we have in, in, in people being sceptical about whether th this might ever come to commercial maturity uh, is uh, the experience that people had with the marine sector, so uh, that's for both wave and tidal, where, where Scotland was um, a, a, a key global player. Um, but for a variety of reasons, the organisations over-promised and under-delivered and, and the quantum of cash needed to uh, to get them there was, was something that in the end was was not sustainable. So a couple of uh, organisations who were uh, who were based in Edinburgh no longer exist and, uh, and didn't manage to get to a point where they could deliver a commercial product. So people are well aware of that history and, and in a way we uh, sometimes suffer from the, uh, the fallout from that, although the quantum of cash for us is significantly lower uh, and the environment in which we will be working is significantly less fierce than working in a in a marine environment um, and, and finally just just test when you're doing a, a mechanical engineering project it's just test test and test again and keep on uh, going through and making sure that what we have is robust and and can be scaled up mm. and I like that because I mean even what you're saying there I mean you can extrapolate that and apply that to other areas of business as well because I mean you're saying first and foremost thing is revenue you need to actually have the cash flow kind of coming in yeah. but also the good advice yes as well which is clearly key because then otherwise yes. you can be spending money on on things which are not, are not going to deliver absolutely and when we found our investors and a, and a whole host of, of government and other organ uh, you know advisors have been very good and uh, very supportive in what we're doing yeah and then it comes to the crawl walk run which i absolutely love that don't try running before you started yes. crawling really yeah. get that that reiteration going and then i think there was the last one that you were saying was be realistic about the timing Yes, uh, and, and, and also what you might be able to deliver. So um, everyone wants us to build at scale as quickly as possible, and, and we do too, uh, for sure. But but if one over-promises and then fails to deliver, that's probably mm. a worse scenario than just being uh, pragmatic about where one can go to uh, and, and being realistic in the targets. Yeah, and do you think that there is um, almost like a, a push within business to get everything scalable as quickly as possible because I mean I even noticed that myself in some industries that I've kind of come across is that the same with you? It, it is so um, if one can get to uh, so if one looks at, at for example conventional wind turbines that started out at uh, a number of kilowatts around 30 kilowatts scaling up to 50 to 70 kilowatts was was a massive challenge at the time uh, and then uh, for a period of time we got up to half a megawatt and then two megawatts onshore uh, and people, you know, discussed is that as far as one can ever go. Those machines then were converted to be able to go into an offshore environment. 
and so we're given special conditioning to protect them from the, the salt-laden air and the, and the forces. Um, but now they're up at uh, 10, 10 megawatts and, and, and there is potential to go up to 20 megawatts in a single device. If one can, if one can make the device bigger, uh, then it is always more cost-effective to, to do that. Uh, and therefore, there will always be a, a trend to try and get the device as large as possible. Mm -hmm. And therefore, fewer devices, fewer, fewer uh, foundations or, or, or anchoring systems. Uh, and, uh, and from the same area, whether it's onshore or, or, or offshore, uh, one can generate more total energy, more total megawatt hours. So that will always be the trend. Uh, and, and there's a natural pull to do that. And we see it in all forms of generation. Mm. Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. So, I mean, it's the bigger the kite almost, <laughs> yes. the, the more that you're going to be able and, to And generate. it's interesting, it comes, uh, I was at the Renewable UK um, offshore conference earlier this week and there was a discussion there about how large um, how large offshore wind turbine blades can go. Um, and uh, the conference was held in what was the old London Road Station in Manchester, so it's now the Manchester Exhibition Centre. And uh, there's a mock-up of, of what is today the tallest, the longest blade, which which went the whole of the... So it's, it's equivalent to St Pancras Station, if people can get a feel for that scale. Wow. Whole of the length of the, whole of the, length of the station. And they reckon they can probably go to about twice that length. So these are seriously large pieces of equipment. When you're trying to put something like that up into the air, yes, that's possible. So clearly, civil aviation and, and, and large uh, you know, military freight aircraft show that uh, you can put very very heavy devices up into the air with the right amount of propulsion and the materials to do that. For us, um, we're not going, uh, we're, we're aiming to go for something that's a little bit less conventional aircraft so it doesn't have a rigid wing, it's, it's a, a kite which will be semi-rigid so we're looking at different materials uh, and we can't be sure how big one might be able to make these ultimately but if we can take the mass down then we believe we've got the potential to go larger in terms of, of electricity generation size down the line. Yeah, and it's kind of fascinating what you're seeing there with soft ridge because obviously I have the image in my head of traditional kites yes. and from hearing you talk about that it's not really going to be just a fabric cloth covered it's not kite. so so we have historically worked with soft kites so uh, and then people are probably aware of of uh, kite surfing and those those uh, the, and the way that parachutes have gone into these steerable parachutes that are more of an oblong shape uh, and have uh, an air, uh, um, the profile of an air, aerofoil we have worked with those systems uh, and they are uh, relatively cheap and relatively uh, uh, um, simple to work with but but there are uh, challenges in terms of a, of a wholly soft kite in that the bridling off it creates an awful lot of drag and so they're inefficient to fly and that doesn't matter when you're kite surfing because anything is better than, than nothing mm -hmm. um, but they also take a lot of setting up we, we've uh, we've then gone to systems which are uh, rigid wings so these are things which will look more like um, a glider okay, uh, but will have propulsion on them to allow them to automatically launch themselves and automatically land themselves um, so yes, the, the gliders come small aircraft, uh, and that's uh, that's an area where there's a lot of knowledge and it's easy to work with. Um, and where we want to be eventually uh, is to take the device into something which is semi-rigid. So uh, a good analogy is, for example, a microtide aircraft where you have a system which flexes the wing. It has support structures underneath it, so, so the bending is not taken wholly through a spar. Uh, so you can get a lot of the mass out, um, uh, but you can get a larger wing surface area, which is what we're looking to do. So um, materials will be key to, to our commercial device. Mm. And then what would be the materials that you would make with a kite? Because obviously having 
having having had the realization that you're not really getting cloth to to make your kites and your so very in very specialist materials and, and this is where we as I spoke earlier about materials that for example today are used in um, in sales of, of uh, the America's Cup yachts so these are not conventional sales these are sales which um, have a, an aerofoil section uh, and are made of specialist materials also some of the materials that are used in for example the very large um, inflatable structures you might see at festivals and things like that so these are again are materials which uh, uh, can take incredibly high loads but but have that flexibility within them we'll be right back after this short nature break So then how has focusing on renewable energy impacted the way that you then live your daily life? So I've, uh, I've been work- working in renewable energy now for um, over 15 years. I, uh, I, I, I didn't find renewable energy, renewable energy found me. So I was working on conventional forms of generation at SSE and uh, the then chief executive, Juan Jay, just, just decided that uh, given the, the, the government support at the time to, to promote uh, development of renewables, it was an opportunity not to be missed. And uh, we were just told that from next week we're working on renewables and we, we were left to, to try and work it out for ourselves. SSC was very good in, in terms of uh, its commitment to sustainability. So uh, and 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 working in an electricity uh, utility does make one reflect on where one uses energy and how one uses energy and the impact it has. So um, in terms of that, for example, I, I've always liked to cycle wherever it's a practical a solution to a to a commute. So I've cycled here today, yep. not just to not just to make a point. <laughs> But I was lucky that, that I've come from somewhere where that's practical uh, to, to do that. But I've also personally always had an issue with people who drive to the gym to do the exercise to go back. No, I'd rather just cycle that. to the gym and cycle home and, and miss out the gym completely. Yep. So I, I like exercising where it has a practical uh, purpose to it. Um, one of the things that I do remember at SSC, we had a, a talk by a lady from uh, Auckland uh, University and she spoke about uh, one's own personal carbon footprint and keeping a log of this and she she logged every flight she took uh, and I'm a, a, a bit meticulous on things like that so I have I, I, inspired by her I then took a log of every flight I take and I do mm. work out my carbon footprint for each year and, and air travel is the one that absolutely massively skews everything else you do it, whatever you do it's small noise compared to to air travel particularly the long haul flights so mm-hmm. um, so I am conscious that every time I, I take a flight um, I uh, I am not contributing to uh, uh, to, to the sustainability of the world, despite despite all the pride I take in having deployed an awful lot of, of renewable um, generation, um, smart metering and things like that, uh, and use of electric vehicles. I don't own an electric vehicle, but uh, I am intrigued in them, and uh, I'm sure we'll get to the point where the price point and the range for many people makes them affordable. So I think that's that's on the future, and that's another reason why. Governments are interested in new forms of sustainable electricity generation because the demand for electricity will increase as as, as transport moves from fossil fuels uh, into uh, electricity, uh, and also just just sustainability in terms of recycling wherever possible. So again, through SSE and then through my subsequent employments, I've tried to promote um, a greater, greater you know, reduced consumption of materials and a greater recycling of materials. What is interesting this last year is the 
the, just the fact that everyone is very comfortable with recycling now and I remember the Germans have been well ahead of us for a long time I remember mm. going on holiday to Germany a few years ago and being faced with about 14 different recycling streams and, and only ever having worked with one black bin and just throwing everything <laughs> into it and being somewhat bewildered by it I, I get that now and the Germans are still ahead so so glass bottle recycling automatic machines to do that but I think what's disappointing is we all suddenly find out that actually we all take a great effort to, to stream our waste but actually plastics hardly any of it is is uh, recovered and a lot of it goes to China and we don't we know not what happens to it there and, mm -hmm. and now that China's turned the tap off we, we're not able to do that ourselves and that's something I'd, I'd, I'd look for governments to, to really get a grip of and, and promote because I think you know societally people are, are, are keen to help wherever possible and do what they can and, and are mm -hmm. disappointed to find out that it's, it's it's not actually being reused a lot of it is still going for landfill yeah having, having said that I, I worked for a company called Infus for the last seven years and I was working on onshore wind, but the organisation was quite unique in that it, it, it owned a landfill gas generation. So uh, even if things go to landfill, uh, there is still then uh, methane gas that comes off that and we captured that and burnt that in reciprocating engines. So it's another form of renewable energy. Um, and, and it was the lead organisation doing that in the UK and, and that's done in the States as well on, on quite a big scale. So using former landfill sites uh, and taking the methane off it and producing electricity from that. So getting something out of waste when people saw no value to it uh, mm. when it was first. And I like that because that's something that's kind of not really talked about, you know, because I think it's too easy that we can all get, oh my goodness, everything's going to landfill. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny because, I mean, this is the first time I think it's probably heard something about this before but really kind of going oh, okay so we can actually recycle energy even from landfill mm -hmm, sites so mm -hmm. it's not a complete loss no nope, we're nope. developing the technology all to, the to time to, to really to recover energy yeah. from things which we thought had no value before yeah now yeah. that's cool yeah so then who do you most admire and why so i had a long think about this um i I came up with a couple of historical figures. So what what I like, what inspires me by certain individuals uh, is um, is strong leadership, particularly in great adversity, and 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 people who look to go outside one's comfort zone and go out into the unknown. So I've always been a great admirer of Captain Cook, just because he went to places that were for his for, for the knowledge that he had were literally off the map clearly for those people who live there they, mm -hmm. they, they were well aware of that but but completely into the unknown but with great preparation and and care for for the people he took with him so one of the things that um he was meticulous about and one of the big challenges to 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 sailing at the time was diet for the crew uh, and uh, and the um the, the high probability that they would succumb to scurvy and although they didn't understand the science he he, he worked with medical professionals and recognized that that taking sauerkraut which is a form of, of I, vegetable you know, which I think is I've just read this because <laughs> I can remember once reading and it was saying it took 70 years for this discovery to come in but because Captain Cook was so determined to get to where he wanted to go he yeah. was listening and taking and yeah. trying everything so they were taking pickled vegetables and they didn't understand why it helped but but empirically they recognized it did help and the crew didn't like it but he insisted that they ate it and he, he didn't lose anyone mm -hmm. other than tropical diseases he didn't lose anyone to scurvy uh, and, and he didn't lose anyone when I mean when you think about being in those ships in those confined spaces for four years at a time mm -hmm. the potential to fall out with each other is is astronomical so so he, he's a great hero Shackleton and, and Scott in their Antarctic expeditions, mm -hmm. great leadership in, in adversity for Shackleton, uh, tremendous what he managed to achieve to rescue all his crew. For Scott, the exact opposite, but the fact that he still provided that leadership right up to, to the very end. And, uh, and even though I, I'm sure he knew you know, what was inevitable, he never... 
he never let it uh, diminish their their determination to try to recover from the situation and and despite it. And then and then just in in terms of business, I've I've been very lucky to work with. Um, Ian Marchant, who um, was the chief executive at SSE and was also our chairman to, at, at Infinis, and I, I engage with uh, occasionally as well. And, and, and I found him to be um, somebody who's, who's very easy to engage with, but is clearly passionate about, uh, you know, on a personal level, uh, promoting the sustainable agenda, works with mm. the Scottish government and uh, gets involved with um, uh, charitable foundations such as putting renewable lighting systems into Malawi and things like that. So I've always found him a very inspiring individual. Yeah, and I like that. So just a couple of things here. When you were talking about Shackleton rescuing his men, can you mm-hmm. just expound on that a little bit more, just for the benefit of people sure. who might not know, including myself? Okay. <laughs> so Shackleton um, did a number of expeditions, and, and indeed he could have been the first to the South Pole, so he got very close to the South Pole, but uh, decided to turn back, which which was the right decision. Um, and uh, and uh, he then did a subsequent exhibition, ex- expedition down. And they would sail down during the summer months, uh, obviously summers uh, the other way around down in the southern hemisphere, and get themselves established and then wait for the winter to pass before then going on the expedition to, to make full use of the weather mm-hmm. opportunity. That winter was very severe uh, and the ice formed around his ship and, and ended up crushing the ship. So the ship sank before them. So they wow. had uh, all their provisions and everything was lost. Uh, and they have no radios at this stage. So we're talking about the early Edwardian era. We're talking, I think mm-hmm. it was about 1910, 1911. Uh, uh, and, and so they managed to, to fabricate some makeshift boats and get everyone to a nearby island where they lived off uh, penguin meat and seal meat. Uh, and then Shackleton and another took that small vessel and, and sailed across tumultuous seas to South Georgia managed to land on South Georgia, which crossing in that vessel was in itself a remarkable feat. Uh, the whaling station was on the opposite side of South Georgia, which meant going over a mountain range. So having having crossed an ocean in an open boat, the two of them then climbed over a mountain range. Wow. Got there, managed to get a message to, uh, to Chile. The Chilean authorities came the whole crew was rescued, uh, and uh, and people, you know, they were they were uh, people had no idea where they were. What was tragic about that was that then a lot of these people were military men, uh, and then within a couple of years, a good number of them died in the First World War, serving their country, having gone through such adversity. Mm. But but, you know, selfless commitment to to ensure. Uh, to, to, to leadership in terms of making sure that the the, the crew uh, managed to, to cope with that uh, terribly adverse period and then uh, himself going above and beyond to make sure that he put in place a rescue plan for them. A remarkable achievement. Oh, that is a remarkable achievement. So then... Man from Northern Ireland. Really? Yeah. Yes, ah, yeah. Good old Northern Ireland. <laughs> so... Do you have a favourite me- nature experience? Um... And why is that important to you? Um, think about this. I mean, I, I I've always enjoyed being out in the open. So I joined I joined the military. Part of the reason I joined the military was because um, I uh, I just like being paid to be outdoors. So the idea of being stuck in an office <laughs> is, uh, and if somebody's prepared to pay me to run around uh, the the open the yeah, the outside, then that that's fantastic. And even though I was in the military for a relatively short period of time, I I, I remained and still remain a, a reservist. So. Um, so yeah, just just uh, you know, many many occasions being on training areas, camping out, listening to birdsong, being up close with nature have been great. I I, I was lucky to, to to experience with the army going to, to places which ordinarily one wouldn't. And one thing that one place that really sticks in my mind was um, so I spent some time in Afghanistan, 
Um, and I ended up in a, a place called Logar Province, which is very close to the Pakistani border. Which, so it's the area where um, uh, there's quite a lot of mischief and some, some scallywags who uh, are out to cause trouble all the time. But it, mm. it's such a beautiful place. To, I, so I was sitting in a special forces base waiting for uh, an aircraft to take me back. And I had a bat. And you, and you wait, you wait, you know, it's a matter of days. It's not like an airport where it's hours, it's mm-hmm. days. Uh, and just sitting in this place... Um, just just looking at the snow-capped mountains and uh, and the streams gurgling past and the climate was glorious and just thinking if security came to this nation it could be such a fantastic tourist destination and and just the calm and peace of it but but what is you know what was so sad is that at any moment things can happen and you know mm. yeah conflict breaks out but uh, but that was one of the nicest places i've been to logar province in afghanistan wow <laughs> It kind of really, really makes you think, isn't it? What we're actually destroying through conflict in terms of natural resources. Well, it's not so much natural resources, it's just people want security. If people can yeah. have security in their everyday lives, they can be so uh, innovative and achieve so much. But it's it's lack of security which, which prevents them from doing this. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. no, I think that's, that's really, really powerful. Um, it is the, the sense of safety that we need. So then how have all of these nature experiences that you've had and even this awareness of how we need security in order to th- thrive, how does this influence and impact the work that you do? So I think a couple of things. One, um, as you go to places and look at people who are living in, 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 in great adversity and without the security there, it really does make you recognise how you should be grateful for what you have. It's just before we, we started this, we were talking about experience mm. of, of, of challenging climates and uh, and things like that. And yeah. um, until you go to, to, to other places, it, it's easy to be complacent about what you have and take it for granted. But it does make one appreciate w- what we have, security, infrastructure, uh, communications, uh, warmth, housing, all of these things, stable, relative, even today, relatively stable government compared to many places on mm-hmm. earth. Um, you know, yes we, yes, we get exercised about what's going on at the moment, but it's uh, our, our frustrations as well compared to, to a number of other things. So I think I, I think that uh, is the main thing for me, to, you know, just, just reflect on what you have and the ability to, to do it. And, and, and for us, what we're doing at the moment, I mean, I'm... Di- I was delighted to, to work in renewables. I am personally committed to renewables. I take a great amount of pride in, in looking at the schemes that have been constructed that I've had a hand in. Um, so, for example, Clyde, the big one, when you, whenever I drive the M74 from, from England up to Glasgow, um, you know, to me, that's a, that's a badge of honour and pride for Scotland. That it was mm. a, a, you know, a, a really good, uh, big step forward in terms of putting additional renewables in. Um, and, and just the fact that I'm lucky I can still work in renewables. I mentioned there's, there's been a stall in, in deployment onshore. That's not the same offshore. Um, but I'm very lucky to still be working in renewables and, and trying to develop a new system which will allow it to go on. Uh, decades ahead and keep on keep on deploying mm. so what is the one thing that you want people to take away from our conversation today um i think really just uh shamelessly i'll put a plug in that the airborne wind energy really does have the potential to to bring costs of renewables down uh, and and to allow it to be deployed in areas where it's not possible at the moment so um you know, in developed nations, yes, cost is very important, and, and we recognise that. And, and the ability to bring a renewable energy system, which uh, which which requires no subsidy, will be fantastic. But also, 
we believe it has the potential to go into developing nations and open up areas there where they might be off-grid or have intermittent grid uh, and bring energy to people who don't have access to either energy or, or energy any energy at all or reliable energy today uh, and, and and just to make that accessible to people. So the lower the price we get it, the more people might be able to to benefit from, from the energy that we enjoy today. Mm, no, that's wonderful. And I, I, I like the thought of kites bringing more and more people together. Mm, mm. Yes, they can do it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Next time on Sustainable, I'm speaking to Henrik Holm, founder of Europe's first B Corporation in Furniture, Whalers Furniture for Good. And we're going to find out more about their circular economy business model. If you want to bring more nature into your life and your organisation, find out more about how EarthSelf's nature-connected coaching, consulting and training can help you and your organisation achieve optimal well-being and performance at www.earthself.org.